0: Everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the Sims family triple homicide and the Oakland County child murder and the Kathy Barrett butter stealing. Oh God damn it. <laughs> it's still unsolved, the butter stealing.
1: I, I'm looking at the NESCAM. It's probably you- Liam, but one of them... You want to tell people what you're talking about? Yeah. The, there was butter <laughs> left out on the counter because my partner was cooking something. She had to run to the store. And over I'm over here recording and I get a a, a text and I open it. It's a picture and there's a lot of dog teeth marks <laughs> into the butter stick. Yep, I'm over it. They I'm jumped sorry. on the bar stool, got onto the bar. Mm. You've seen our little kitchen bar area yeah. where we cook. Liam has a habit of
0: eating. He's he's jumped up and eaten a stick of butter before.
1: Sure,
0: he's, I mean why he's twelve not? pounds. I, so it was a little bit of a misstep to leave the butter out.
1: Well, we we as we do. We are. Uh, I had a moment with my partner to say you got to put it on the other side of the counter because mm-hmm. he gets up there. And, we learn these things. And Belly has gotten up and
0: gotten a th- wheel of brie cheese before. So <laughs> I mean all know the they dairy get up there. All the dairy. God. <laughs> So perhaps by the end of the episode, that might be a solved crime as opposed to an unsolved crime. We'll see. I got to look deep into the nest cam and see if I can make out which one it is. Well, you let us know because at the end I'll I'll be (sighs) following up on that and see if there was any more evidence gathered. Fuck! (laughs) So in that mood, Kathy's going to tell us about the Oakland County child murder. Well... All right. So I wanted to talk about this case a few years
1: back and it just, you know, we have so many different things come across our desk that we never got to it. Gotcha. But this case specifically took place in the county that I was born and raised. Oh, okay. So I thought that was kind of cool to mm-hmm. do that. And my sister-in-law also born and raised in this county. We became kind of obsessed with it for a while because, you know, yeah. it's close to home. hometown, And just like folks who I know who I've met that I've had encounters with Ted Bundy and they're like, you know, I, I met, he actually talked to someone a couple weeks ago who, who's really good friend ended up on a date with Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you hear these like weird things and you look back and go, Oh God, my yeah. sister-in-law, I think she encountered this guy's car or something. Anyway, when she was a kid, she's like, that car. I remember there was a moment. It was during that time. I'm pretty sure that's who it was. Mm. So,
0: you know, it became a. Yeah, you get a little bit obsessed when you have these like little tiny brushes with things.
1: Yeah. So now is the time to talk about it for those people. It was actually a pretty big case. We were obsessed with this case for a long time because we grew up in this area. So from 1976 to 1977, four children were kidnapped and murdered in Oakland County, Michigan. And Oakland County, Michigan is like about as white bread suburb. It's Mm -hmm. a suburb of Detroit. It's upper middle class. Things like this really don't happen here, which I think was another, you know, especially at that time, it was like, what? Why here? Right. So for people who aren't oriented to Michigan, you know, Detroit was a different thing at that time. This suburb of Detroit, stuff like this wasn't happening. So four children were kidnapped and murdered. In Oakland County, the killer was not identified but was given the moniker, the Oakland County child killer. So the case drew national media attention. Multiple suspects were investigated, but they never could find the killer. There were four confirmed victims, three more suspected, and then three additional possible victims. Mm. So they they were all over the place with this. The four victims, it was a really strange case. The positionings of the bodies were very strange. Um, The killer had a very bizarre pattern to their killings and would leave them like camped and somewhere they could be seen. So they would put the body out right next to like a roadside. So someone would drive by and see them dressed like very neatly. Like they had been bathed the The whole thing. Yeah, Yeah, it was a display. So I'm going to talk about first introduce the four unfortunate um, victims. They were so young. So Mark, Douglas Stebbins, 12 of Ferndale, Michigan, did not return home from an American Legion Hall from American Legion Hall on February 15, 1976. His body was found four days later wearing the same clothes he was last seen in lying on a pile of wood and dirt in the parking lot of a local office building in Southfield, Michigan. He had been strangled and sexually abused with a foreign object and had two lacerations to the left rear of his head. Rope marks were evident on both of his wrists and ankles, indicating he had been bound during his captivity. Second victim is Jill Robinson, 12, of Royal Oak, Michigan, left her home on December 22, 1976. Uh, following an argument with her mother over dinner preparations. The following day, her bicycle was found behind a local hobby store before her body had been found alongside Interstate 75 in Troy, which is actually the exact city I'm from. Oh, wow. Um, And Royal Oak was where I was born. So this is like really kind of nutty. And if those folks that are listening who are on the East Coast or Midwest, we know that I-75 goes like, all across that entire. It's a huge interstate. Um, So it was within view of the Troy police station on the morning of December 26. uh, That's when they found the body. So she had been shot in the face with a 12 gauge shotgun and her body was fully clothed and wearing the backpack she had taken with her when she left home. Christine Marie Mihalic or Mihalic. 10 of Berkeley, Michigan, was reported uh, missing on January 2nd, 1977, after she failed to return home from a 7-Eleven store on 12 Mile Road at Oakshire. A mail carrier found her fully clothed a body 19 days later on the side of a rural road in franklin village she had been smothered to death less than 24 hours earlier and her body lay within view of nearby homes so we're seeing a trend of like what this guy does kind of creepy very and then the last one is timothy john king who was 11 years old he left his home in birmingham all these little cities too are very close to each other like people who don't know the suburbs of detroit these are all within like a half hour 20 minutes of each other no
0: that's helpful because i don't know the area Mm -hmm. and it also just talk it sort of tells you how the person was definitely a local
1: yeah absolutely and that's the thing is and i'll get into that in a moment of some of the suspects so birmingham berkeley troy royal oak they're all like ferndale they're all very close relatively close anyway if we're i mean i live in la so everything feels you know close if it's a half hour away but to people in the midwest are like that's so far <laughs> that's, a whole, uh, that's a whole other that's a whole other day of traveling <laughs> okay so <laughs> calm
0: down that's people. how people in the midwest i sound, have to drive
1: 20 minutes yeah that's, that's how you like, grew up that's like my trip to target okay
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah all right sorry guys all right timothy john king so he was um After he failed to return home, an intensive search covering the entire Detroit metropolitan area was conducted before his body was found on the evening of March 22nd by two teenagers in a shallow ditch alongside Gill Road in Livonia. Again, close to the area that we're talking. This is all Detroit metropolitan. He had been sexually assaulted, so there's a trend with a foreign object, there's a trend, and suffocated approximately six hours earlier, another trend. Autopsy results revealed that King had eaten his favorite food, Kentucky Fried Chicken, shortly before his death, and that he was cleaned and groomed prior to his suffocation, another trend. This case sets itself apart from other serial killer cases because the killer only targeted children and managed to leave behind almost no evidence perhaps a clue that the perpetrator had law enforcement or military experience is something that they had considered but also even though he left no evidence he was very he was loving this public display of leaving and of, of look look at my trophies look at what I've done right mm-hmm. so between february 15th 1976 and march 16th 1977 two boys and two girls aged between 10 and 12 um, went missing outside their homes, en route from uh, another location. So that, that's another trend. They left home, they were en route. And, you know, we have to think about the 70s, especially in the suburbs. Everybody rode their bikes and walked everywhere. Yep. People still hitchhiked at this time, although that's not what happened here. So just to reiterate how each child's body was discovered in a public area within 19 days of their appearance, The children were all either strangled or shot, with the two boys having been sexually abused. Once the victims were dead, the offender dispersed their bodies around Oakland County in places where they could be seen from roadways. I mean, imagine driving your car and seeing a child laying out on the side of the road.
0: You wouldn't think it was real.
1: No, you'd think it was a joke, like Mm -hmm. a twisted joke. Yep. The four deaths triggered a murder investigation, which at the time was the largest in U.S. history. Which I thought was pretty remarkable. So, with Detroit's two daily newspapers, as well as the area's numerous radio and television stations covering the case, a presentation, and I remember this radio station, WXYT, <laughs> entitled Winter's Fear The Children, The Killer, The Search, won the Peabody Award in 1977. The murder investigation, like I mentioned, was the largest of its kind at the time. And so they had developed a special task force to look for these children. So during the investigation, instead of finding the killer, because they're, you know, they're throwing out, so they're they're casting this large net. The task force checked more than 18,000 tips that they were given. That is a lot, which resulted in various arrests on unrelated charges. But here's another thing that they found, the discovery of a multi-state child pornography ring they eventually turned the case over in 1978 to the state police. So while casting this large net, they start to find all these other things and they start to wonder like, is this child pornography ring maybe connected? Mm -hmm. So they were unable to make much headway in the investigation disbanding in December, 1978 when the investigation was turned over to the state police. The massive investigation led police to two people, Frank Sheldon of gross point. Again, all this is Oakland County and Jerry Richards, a teacher in Port Huron. Sheldon owned much of North Fox Island, and Richards recruited young boys to fly to the island, according to investigators. And I believe that's where this porn ring was, sex trafficking ring was. So a person claiming to be the roommate of the Oakland County child killer wrote a long letter to a Detroit psychiatrist in 1977. It was pretty nonsensical and looked to be pretty legit. And... They wanted to follow up on this guy. They tried to get him to, to meet. So Dr. Bruce Danto, that's the name of the psychiatrist, he obviously shared the letter with the investigators, and the author of the letter only identified himself as Alan, as he referred to the killer as Frank. So Alan said that uh, he, said he went with the killer when he looked for boys. You know, He's allegedly this, this guy's roommate. But he said he was not with Frank when he kidnapped the four murder victims. So the letter had, and then the letter had like all these spelling and punctuation errors, almost like it was written very nervously. This is what the letter said, and it's all the spelling and stuff is off, but it says, I'm desperate, totally spelled wrong, and nearly gone crazy and have, haven't got no place left to turn, Alan wrote. Please don't give up the killer to the police. You must help me as there's no one else I ca- can't turn to. This is for real. I know who the killer is. I live with him. I am his slave. So Alan said that he stayed with the children in the apartment in Detroit when Frank would go out and work. Um, So almost like his watcher in a way. He said that the children were gagged so nobody else in the apartment complex could hear them. So Alan asked the psychiatrist to contact him through the newspapers using code words. This is something the BTK did also. Um, And the code words were trees to bloom in three weeks. So according to Ludington Daily News report, Danto received a call from Allen on April 10th, 1977, after they used the code words, and the two agreed to meet uh, the next night at a bar. Allen said he would bring Polaroid pictures that would prove Frank killed the four children if Danto brought a letter of immunity, then from Governor William Milliken. Allen never showed up at the bar. So the man sound, he said, the Danto said, the man sounded very frightened, not cool and composed. Danto told the newspaper, I don't think it was a hoax call. He just freaked out at the last minute. Right. So there was the, their lead, right? So Frank Sheldon, what we know about Frank Sheldon is he built an airfield with a landing strip, added a docking area and constructed cabins on this Fox Island. He had a private jet and flew children from Charlevoix to the island where he had a filming operation for a child pornography ring. So we already know he's guilty, at least of this. Yes. Sheldon fled the country in 1976 and was never prosecuted. He died in 1996. Richards, our other guy, was prosecuted for child pornography and has since died. So he was the one that was working kind of in a partnership. So investigators do not believe either man is the Oakland County child killer, but one theory suggests that the killer could be someone they victimized on the island. That was another theory. Grew up and became that. Detective Corey Williams from Wayne County. We were the first to look at pornography and pornography rings and pedophilia as being a motive in this case. We put quite a bit of time and effort into that. Were these kids filmed? Were their pictures taken? Were they passed around? We don't know at this point, but we did put a lot of time and effort into that. A suspect is not currently named in the Oakland County child killer case. Instead, investigators have several persons of interest in the case, people who may uh, know or at least know of the killer. Many of the persons of interest have ties to crimes involving pedophilia. The evidence tying these persons of interest to the case range from DNA to flat-out accusations. But the four victims' parents never got closure to the case.
0: That's terrible. Yeah. Sounds like they got very
1: close, though. Yeah, they did. And they may have, somewhere in there, they may have named them without us really knowing, right? Right.
0: It could have been one of those people. Absolutely. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. Do we have any updates on the Butter murder? Oh, let me see. Well, when you,
1: uh, let me see. I don't think so. I don't know if we're going to know. I might have to be the one that looks back at this ring, cam. (laughs) <laughs> um, but the culprit okay. is certainly one of we, we have three and, and there's a, a pretty good chance it's two out of the three. Okay. Breaking news. Yeah. It's two out of, the two three. out of the three, because they've got the greyhound bouncy legs. The other one has dachshund legs. Isn't making it up
0: that Isn't going to happen? No. Probably just not that, in, not as interested either.
1: No, but the dachshund did grab one of my horse's treats that I had in the console of my car Oh. yesterday when i went to take my other two in to get their nails oh, well, done easy pickings there. i came out and i'm like where's lennon's treat and all of a sudden she's
0: in the back oh so a, a crime that was solved very quickly fucking gluttonous every single one of them <laughs> that crime was solved very quickly we are still breaking news on the butter crime you let me know later I'll check in with you after we talk Certainly about will. the Sims family, triple homicide. Now back to you, Shannon. When
1: okay. you, when you say the Sims, I think it's like a video game. Yeah. Unsolved oh, oh, crime. did you play
0: that video game? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it has nothing to do with that. So on October 22nd, 1966... We are in Tallahassee, Florida. Of course. Sorry, Mich- Floridians, but my
1: God, you're you, you're low-hanging fruit. I mean, of course, Michigan. We could say the same thing. <laughs> all of our, all even our what-the-hells are Florida. I know,
0: I know. Jeez. So Tallahassee at the time was a pretty small town. It was about sort of coming into booming town. <laughs> it was on its way, but it was a pretty small town. And most of the population of Tallahassee was attending a football game at the popular North Florida fair on this evening and events like this quite literally left the whole town empty, right? Like that's how small it was. Everybody's at the football game. Mm-hmm. You remember that, right? Oh, yeah. Small towns. So oh, yeah. the Sims family, namely Robert who's for, who was 42 wife, Helen 34 and daughter joy aged 12 decided to stay back at 641 Muriel Court. And I give the address because there's actually a documentary called that. that I was, you can to say, that sounds familiar. That you can get on Vimeo if you so choose or if you're interested in all the details like some people are. Now, their 15-year-old daughter, Judith Ann, was babysitting. And Norma Jeanette, 17, was actually at this game. So while the town enjoyed the game, someone killed the three Sims, father, mother, and daughter while they were still at home jenny returns from babysitting and her sister and her both her sisters and her parents just aren't at home like she walks in the house it's all kind of dark and really quiet you know how you can kind of tell when there's just no one home even if you haven't looked around so she starts to look around thinking like well maybe they went out or whatever and she finds her mother her father and her little sister bound, gagged, and covered in blood on the floor in one of the bedrooms. Mm. You know, freaks out, obviously. And at that time in small towns, you didn't have 911. You didn't have like emergency services really. So she called the local funeral home and said, that's who you called in those days when there's something happened, like they were the hub. That's right. And so they... Answered, obviously. And she said, you know, please come. Something's awful's happened, whatever she said. And so the funeral workers were actually the first people on site. And then a cop came in later. And at that time, that police officer was actually 24 years old, kind of really new to the job. And, you know, (laughs) you could imagine (laughs) You can imagine that in this town, kind of like Kathy's case, it's just nothing, not anything anybody was expecting. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what to do. They'd never investigated murders before. And like those kinds of like really shocking, awful, what the heck do we do kind of deal. Mm -hmm. So this family is widely known as a nice family, a traditional family. Dad actually worked in tech, which at that time was very rare. He was actually worked in computer development and technology and was a professor and all of this. So he was a technology expert and that was very rare and very kind of cool. And it tech at that time was, you know, it's 1966. So it was a very different thing. Mom stayed home. She was known to be a fantastic piano player and very well liked. They went to the local Baptist church and the daughters were widely known as just nice girls. You know, yeah. th- there was nothing remarkable. There was nothing that made them stand out victims. No, it was like, who would want to hurt them? That idea that we often have when we find murders. And a lot, in a lot of cases, you figure out like, oh, and then the truth unfolds and there's this whole dark history or what have you. That That's not the case here. They were nice people. From everybody's account. Right. And how they ended up shot, bound, blindfolded, stabbed, like on the floor in their house, nobody's really sure. (laughs) And of course at this time, you know, the evidence got all fucked up. And this crime scene. Oh, and this is
1: before DNA. The crime scene got all fucked
0: up. They ordered a pizza. You know, the whole thing. They (laughs) sat and watched their TV. Yeah, it was not, the you know. Hanging out, so none of that was going to be helpful because they just weren't used to needing to to do that to solve crimes. But what I can tell you is that there was no evidence of a struggle. I mean, if furniture was tipped over or anything like that, the person must have cleaned up. But think, there was you think they knew them? Maybe. Yeah, there was no evidence of a struggle. There was no robbery. There was items all around the house that would have been easy pickings for a robbery. There were. No forced entry. So that's the idea that Kathy's saying is that somebody let them in the house willingly. Now, in a small town, that was probably pretty common. I mean, it can be common. Now you get a knock at the door and people open it. Yeah, I don't. But in a small town at <laughs> but, that time, not like bizarre. Yeah, no, not bizarre at all to open up the door and let a salesman sit at your kitchen table. Like not unheard of at all. So did they know them or didn't they know them? I don't know. It's like uh, they want to say, oh, they must have known them, but because of the no forced entry, but I don't know. I think they have it, an
1: estimated time of date. Oh, was it even in the evening?
0: Yeah. That would be while a, they were at the football game. That'd be
1: a bizarre time though for, for a, you know,
0: a door to door salesperson to be coming by. You know, nice people get hurt. They do. That's what I, that's what I keep thinking is it's like being nice is being friendly to strangers and being innocent in the world is sometimes a lovely quality. But I think it also unfortunately leads to more active victimization in situations like this. But to be truthful, it's like, how would they be, ever be expecting this? Like th- where they lived and who they were and what kind of town they were in. No one would expect that someone would arrive on their door and kill them. Like I just don't think anybody in that town was expecting anything like this. Jeez. So as far as the bodies are concerned, the 12 year old Joy was dead when they arrived. The mom and dad were actually still alive, still breathing anyway. And dad was worked on at the scene and ultimately died at the scene after their efforts. And mom was taken to the hospital and was in a coma for about nine days and then succumbed to injuries. And it was an uh, interesting like, in your case, you know, we talk a lot about, trend, well, you called them trends, but like, you know, qualities of the murders and stuff that are the same. And this person was like, shot him, st- you know, stabbed him, uh, bound him. At one point, you could tell that the mom or something was struck on the side of the face, or maybe that was the kid. All the modalities were used. It wasn't like a serial murder where you get ritualized things. Mm. So that to me sort of says that this wasn't someone who was like going around killing a bunch of people or in a ritualized manner, more like your case sounded like somebody who was going to repeat that. Over oh and yeah, o- yeah. 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 Who repeated that over and that over and over again. That was a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. This, this doesn't feel like that to me. And they didn't take anything from the house. No, no. And nothing was posed. Nothing was nothing seemed serial killer-esque. It's not to say that this person isn't violent and capable of murder. Obviously they are, but it didn't seem like a ritual killing. Okay. What happens in Tallahassee, as you might imagine in any small town, would be that immediately everyone is terrified. So the whole town arms itself. I mean it is florida but the whole town it's 1966 the whole town starts arming themselves people aren't going out they don't want to go to the football games they don't want to go to church they're not allowed to walk alone all the things that families do Mm -hmm. when horrific things happen in a town you're in they begin to look at suspects right so this is the worst crime that tallahassee had ever seen and they began to try to figure out what the what the F happened. And so the first suspect that they really had was Dr. Cecil Albert Roberts. And in those days, everybody called you by like initials. So he was known as C C A C A Roberts. And he was a pastor at the First Baptist Church. And that is where Mrs. Sims was working at the time. And she had resigned a few days before before the murders and at first there was speculation like oh they were having an affair etc but what they figured out or what they believe is that the days before the murder when she resigned it was more because she knew too much dr roberts had been having affairs with a lot of women in the church outside the church in town and what happened is after the murders happened all of the women he was having affairs with started calling the police and saying, I just want you to know I didn't do it and here's my alibi. And so the police started going, what's up with this Dr. Roberts person? Like he wasn't even a suspect. It was that all these women were calling to try to get themselves off the hook because they knew if Dr. Roberts was going to be investigated that they would be suspect because they were having affairs with him. Oh God. So, like that's the
1: worst person to have an affair with and you're <laughs> like, "Oh, now they're in the media yep. and I'm
0: going to be exposed." Yep. And so they all started calling and literally that's how he became a suspect, which I thought was so interesting. Ultimately, even though he was a douche, no there was no ultimately evidence that he killed the family. You know, that was their speculation was the motive was that, you know, she knew too much. And so he went and killed the whole family. But there was no history. There was no evidence. There was no nothing. He was seen places, you know, it just didn't really pan out. And and there was actually no evidence that Mrs. Sim was involved with him. We wondered what she's witnessing that would make everybody so jittery, but we don't really know. So that was the first suspect. The second suspect was Robert Howells. Who, you know, this is the one where the motive didn't really like play out. I guess he had a scuffle with um, Mrs. Sims in the grocery store. Uh, scuffle, you know, obviously that wasn't fisticuffs. This wasn't that wasn't what was going on, but right. had a little interaction that was negative with Mrs. Sims in the grocery store. And then, you know, okay, so then he goes to home and kills the whole family. Now I understand someone who's unhinged would certainly do that. But the motive just didn't really play out. But at the time, this guy was actually in, was a violent guy in his primary relationships. So he was known for that. And so the people that knew him didn't really feel like that was out of the realm of possibility. But and so and after the murders, here's another thing that started to happen was that several men in town started to, who were already violent and threatening, started to violently threaten their wives as if they were the ones who killed oh, the Sims family. Geez. So this case is most interesting to me because of all the things that kind of materialized afterwards. A lot, it's very, a lot of like projections. <laughs> it's very small town, yes. kind of murder reactions. What like, did you do? They arm themselves. The town preacher is the main suspect and all the affairs are calling the cop place. And then now we've got all the men in town using this as a gaslighting threatening thing to their wives. Like I'm going to kill you. Like I killed them. That kind of threats. It's like, Oh, Robert. Oh, wow. But nobody buys the motive at the time. But here's the thing in the eighties, 20 some odd years later, a letter is found written by the partner of Robert Howells, accusing him of the murders and writing all of this stuff. And so (laughs) they try to reinvestigate, but there's no more, like it just never goes anywhere. And then the third suspect is Tommy Folgium. And in the seventies, he's 29 years old, but when, this murder happened, he was, you know, under, he was a kid or not a kid, but younger, 19 or something like that. So in the seventies, he's 29 and he is arrested at 29 and found to have disembodied women in his home, very Aladamer liver in a jar in his fridge and saying things like you know, I had to do it because Satan would be chained for forever and he could no longer be on the earth. I was told like if I killed these this, these women, then Satan would be chained and wouldn't be able to hurt anybody. So I, I I felt I had to do it. So he claimed possession and devil, he like he was the devil and all of this. and this guy is found to live like three blocks from the Sims. And so, He became a suspect, even though the murders have nothing to do with each other. Mm -hmm. But you never know if he was truly delusional. You never know what delusion he had about anybody. So, of course, they, you know, he lived two blocks south of The Sims. And so they had to check it out. But there were no matching prints in the house. They had prints, but nobody, you know, you couldn't match them to him. They hadn't matched anybody to the prints, actually. And the sisters didn't even recognize him. Like, they didn't. The surviving two sisters didn't even know who he was. So they were, everybody's just like, okay. Mm. So then we come to Mary Charles LaJoy, who was a very troubled teen at the time. She was the kind of kid that would break into the funeral home and sleep in funeral robes and talked about death all the time. Oh, and it's like, that's like a Christina Ricci character. Yeah. Only mm, maybe not so innocent, right? Yeah. Like, Not so empowering. And she had a friend, I I couldn't quite figure out, like a friend or whatever, whose name was Vernon Fox Jr., who was, and they were like each other's only friend in high school and when they were young. And he was a suspected prowler. He was spotted peeping in looking at Joy Sims, which was, you know, one of the girls. And it was so weird when I was watching this documentary, they interviewed him. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course he denies it, but they interviewed him and he was like, Oh yeah, I remember when I first met Mary Charles, we were kids. And you see him get this like far away little stare and go, she was such a pretty little girl at that time. And he says it like three or four times. Oh. And you're like, this guy is such a pedophile. Yeah, gross. And he was a suspected prowler. Like he would go and, and peep at people, people, little girls or women or whatever. So this is decades later. Mary Charles says that Vernon killed them. Decades later, I think in the 80s, they bring her in for this interview in the police station and you can watch it online and she does a lot of so if I was there actually when it happened, what would happen to me? And if I actually was involved, what would happen to me? She never confesses. They never find the weapon. There's no real. That's bizarre. There's no real evidence. And at one point in the interview with the cops, she starts to, he, the guy starts to say, oh, I know she asks if I did this or I did that, what would happen? And the cop unfortunately says, well, you would probably go to, you know, the mental health Institute or whatever for a year or two. And get the help you need, da-da-da. And she's like, well, I don't need any help. Like, why would I be sent away? And da da da. And then she totally starts to recant, back away from any – she didn't confess or anything. And she didn't give them any information about herself. She was giving information about this guy, but she wasn't saying anything about herself. And then she never really gave them any hard evidence. And this is, of course, decades after the murder – and it never really goes anywhere. Well,
1: and she was also somebody that was kind of obsessed with this, like, very dark and macabre, like, you know, like, there was so- a lot
0: of suspicion around, like, the validity. Yeah, like, anything. maybe she was
1: obsessed with the fantasy. I don't we don't know. Because well, this and- is someone who did weird shit.
0: Yeah. And, and she was much older, of course, by now, you know, decades later. And it's like, why is she going and entering back into that and like selling out yeah, her weird. supposed friend? That's weird. For the police officers, without a confession or any other more solid information, they just abandoned it. There you go. Mm. Still unsolved. We do not know. Possibly exactly like the butter murder. Oh, well, I I narrowed it down to 1230 this afternoon.
1: Okay. It looks like there might have been a main culprit and then like a, you know, a sidekick. I Mm. just can't tell. Different teeth marks? I can't. No, I just, I see two little fawns. Oh, In that area. One's on the bar
0: chair and one's on the counter, and I can't tell which one is which. Wow, it might have been both of them. It might have been. More investigation. Will you uh will you interview the possible suspects later at home? Oh, you bet I will. You will investigate their poop, I imagine, and maybe Bell will shake and Liam will play dumb. All right. Yeah. More more to be revealed. Stay tuned for that. Thank you everyone for <laughs> listening to this episode of terror talk and the butter murders and we will uh follow up with the butter murder if there's any further evidence i have a feeling it's a cold case now because the suspects aren't going to really talk and i just don't have the technology to zoom in that right right unless there's a poop evidence yeah that could actually tip the scales thank you so much for listening to this episode of terror talk my name is shannon and i'm kathy sleep safe everyone